This is the official Covering the Corner podcast, episode 173. I am your host, Matt Lyons, and this week's episode, we have something a little special for you. Merritt and I were not available to record this week, so we thought we'd turn it over to Chris D. Davies, a fellow writer here at Covering the Corner, who runs a segment on the site called The Dog-Eared Corner, where he reviews baseball books, interviews the author of said books. If you haven't already, check out the segment on CoveringTheCorner.com, where he goes through and he does these um, great in-depth reviews of the books themselves, gives you an idea of what they are, and then he interviews the author in audio form. Most of the time, they're just embedded on the site, but we figured this was a perfect time just because Merritt and I are not available to record, and this is a, a very timely interview with the author of Our Team, The Epic Story of Four Men, and the World Series That Changed Baseball, um, the author Luke Eplin. So Chris interviewed him. Um, it's, it's, even if you read the book, if you haven't, either way, it's a great re- interview um, just to get a general idea of Luke himself and, and what went into writing this book and what he focused on. And um, It's a really great book. It's a great interview, so we're happy to have it as a as a mini sort of episode on here now without me and Merritt here to, to record, but we'll be back next week. And as always, thanks for listening. Um, we'll have a regularly scheduled episode next week, but without further ado, here's Chris and author of our team, Luke Eplin. Enjoy. Hello everyone. And welcome to dog-eared corner. I am very excited today to be joined by Luke Eplin, author of our team, the epic story of four men and the world series that changed baseball. Now, this book was riveting to me. I could barely put it down as a Cleveland baseball fan. Obviously, I've known a lot about the 1948 team. I've always read about them. But you really got into parts of the story that I hadn't heard before. And I was wondering what inspired you to write this book, because I'm reading the back flap, and you're from rural Illinois, near my area. And now you're in Queens, not exactly Cleveland. It's not exactly Cleveland, no. I grew <laughs> up in, in southern Illinois in a small town near St. Louis. I grew up a diehard Cardinals fan. Um, still am a diehard Cardinals fan, by the way. My grandpa was one of those very odd St. Louis persons, though, uh, who was a diehard St. Louis Browns fan. Um, in the uh, Before 1953, St. Louis had two major league baseball teams, the St. Louis Cardinals, which were usually great, and the St. Louis Browns, which were usually terrible. Um, So my grandfather uh, told me stories about the Browns when I was growing up. I'd always been sort of interested in that team. And I guess that anybody who knows anything about the Browns knows that the last owner of that team was Bill Veck. He did some of his most notorious uh, stunts and promotions on the Browns, um, most notably setting Eddie Goodell, a little person to bat. Um, So I've been fascinated with Bill Veck pretty much my entire life. And the original intention was to try to write a book about the Browns and the team that my grandpa loved. Um, So when I was researching Veck, I went back through his uh, biography a little bit. I started reading archives from the 40s when he was the owner of the Indians. And I started noticing certain names pop up. Bob Feller, Larry Doby, Satchel Paige. And I really started to see the way that these these four individuals were resonating and sort of in tension with each other. Um, and that's whenever I started to think that the the story that I wanted to tell actually happened earlier on the Indians. Yeah, that's interesting. I I know Bill Veck uh, as the owner of the Indians' last championship, 
but I, I haven't read Vakazinrek, his autobiography, or, or much about him. And it was interesting to me that he was kind of such a tragic character in this book, from his war injuries to his personal life. Um, what was most interesting in your research about him, besides the connection with the, the, the other three guys profiled in your book? Yeah, as you mentioned, Bill Vick, uh got in got injured during World War II. He was he came from Chicago. He was a um, he was the son of the Chicago Cubs president during the 1920s, Bill Vick Sr. So he grew up really around baseball and gained sort of an education on uh, just through watching his dad and going to games and things like that. He bought the Milwaukee Brewers, which was by then a minor league team, when he was very young, uh, like 27 years old, and just kind of created a sensation. He was known for giving away outlandish things like livestock and uh, kegs of or like blocks of ice, things like this. He was kind of an iconoclast and really was inventing sort of the promotional giveaways that we now take for granted at the stadium. Most uh, honorably, he volunteered for the Marines um, when he was 29 and didn't have to go, gets sent to the South Pacific and suffers a pretty bad injury to his leg. And I always thought that the most interesting thing that I did researching with Beck was sort of just realizing how much pain he was in whenever he then bought the Indians in 1946. His leg does not heal and he has to undergo an amputation um, while he's the owner of the Indians from 1946 to 1949, he's sort of continually in and out of hospitals. He's undergoing major surgeries, and yet he's just pushing through it. He just has this sort of forward momentum about him. It's like he's 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 sort of compelled to get to that championship no matter what, and uh, no matter the sort of physical or emotional toll. Um, yeah, he's just a, a he's a, he's a person that's sort of just a ball of energy almost. Right. That definitely comes through in the book. <laughs> but uh, along with him being a ball of energy, he was a true champion for integration and and you go back to his Brewers days and and when he was first plotting to buy a major league team and how he wanted to integrate them. Uh can you just tell me about what you learned about his relationship to Satchel Page, to Larry Doby, um, and how that shaped your narrative. Yeah, so Bill Vec, as I mentioned, grew up in Chicago, and Chicago at that time was kind of the nerve center of the Negro Leagues. It was where the annual East-West All-Star Game happened for the Negro Leagues. Um, they had several prominent uh, teams. Players would pass through there quite often. And so Vec went to these games as a kid, and he recognized the talent, the skills, the abilities of, of these players. Newspaper writers from, from black newspapers would sort of marvel later whenever Vec was the owner of the Indians, not only at the fact that Vec knew uh, so many different players, but he could sort of name their positions. He could sort of tell what they had done. He really, he really had a, a good knowledge of it. And he also was a very shrewd baseball mind. And so he kind of was playing a form of Moneyball in the 1940s, where he recognized that with free agency not a thing yet, and with sort of limited opportunities in trade, the quickest way to infuse talent on your ball club was to go where others weren't looking, and other owners were not looking at the Negro Leagues. Um, when he was the owner of the Brewers, he had this plot to 
by the Philadelphia Phillies in 1942. The Phillies at that time were a uh, down-on-its-luck club, um, but it was during wartime, and, and so many players like Bob Feller and others were being drafted. The talent was was thinning out, and so owners were having to sort of call up minor leaguers or, or get these aging veterans back into the game. And Vex just thought to himself, well, if I'm able to buy the Phillies, I will stock the roster with Negro League talent, including Satchel Paige, whom Vex had been watching at least since 1934. Um, it was kind of a dream of his to, to, to be able to, to, to put Paige into the majors where he rightfully belonged. Um, so, yeah, he, he had this sort of side to him where he was very forward thinking and, and, and had high ideals in terms of, of, of integration. But he also sort of was recognizing the sort of opportunity that could come with integration in terms of helping his own clubs. Yeah. And his relationship with Paige in particular is fascinating, and especially the fact that that he kind of slow walked towards the acquisition of, of Paige. And then when he did have him on the roster, he didn't meddle with Lou Boudreau's management. And perhaps Paige wasn't used to the best of his abilities, even at his advanced age. It's possible. I, whenever, whenever Vec buys the Indians in 1946, it's midway through the season. The Indians are already like 20 games out of the pennant race. And so he recognizes that, uh, that integrating during that time, people might accuse it, him of engaging in a stunt. Vec was known for, as I said, these sort of wild promotional giveaways. He would sometimes, uh, put, uh, clowns on the field, things like this. He, uh, he, he didn't want his critics to say that he's integrating just as a way to, uh, draw fans or exploit, uh, these black, players. Um, to that end, when he does decide to integrate the Indians in 1947, he chooses a much younger person. Larry Doby was 23 um, at that time, a budding Negro League star on the Newark Eagles. Um, he does not choose Satchel Paige to come on there. Paige at this time is already in his 40s. A lot of people in Major League Baseball think that he is too old now to, to be in the game. Um, and so he doesn't, again, want to sort of have to deal with the blowback from critics that this is just a stunt. Whenever, in fact, Vec was dead serious on what he was doing, he really thought that these players could help his team. It's only in 1948, whenever the Indians pitching is sort of waning midway through the season, particularly Bob Feller is not having a good year that year, that Vec finally does enlist Satchel Page to come onto the Indians um, and 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 boost the club, and he certainly does that in July and August. Yeah, the the story of Feller is interesting because you come at it a little bit differently than other biographers that I've read. We one of the first books we did in this series of book reviews was about uh, Bob Feller's barnstorming days, particularly with Satchel Page and their relationship. And the way you explored it was very interesting because you didn't shy away from the fact that he still insisted that black players were not good enough to compete in the majors up until Jackie Robinson had signed and beyond. And I wonder what that was like for you in the research and how you went about writing it with tact. Yeah, it was a tricky, it was a tricky part. Um, the way, the way that I sort of approached it was my book opens with this sort of Bob Feller origin story, which I think is crucial to understanding who Feller was. 
Bob Feller uh, grew up in a, in a farm in central Iowa. He was someone who evinced a extraordinary ability from an early age. His father recognized it and sort of cleared off a portion of their pasture and built Bob Feller a, a, a baseball field right there. It was basically like a field of dreams. Um, his fastball was so fast that certain high school teams in the area just wouldn't even play Feller's high school because they didn't want to have to face this guy. Um, through sort of happenstance, Feller lands on the Indians at age 17. He's only a high school junior. And in his first major league start, uh, he ties the American League record for strikeouts in a game. He is a sensation. He's a prodigy. He's somebody that sets the media and the baseball world on fire. He's so popular that uh, NBC Radio broadcasts his high school graduation from coast to coast. And so Feller has this incredible origin story, and he sort of knows what to do with it. He can sort of use that narrative, sort of you know, take this persona of the all-American boy from the heartland, this pastoral thing, and use it to his own economic advantage. Um, and those sorts of values that are put in there, this sort of rugged individualism, self-reliance, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, these are sort of classic white American values. And so the way that I sort of interpreted what Feller was saying whenever he then denigrated uh, black ballplayers um, was that he would often couch it in terms of not that he didn't want to play with them, not that he thought that these players would take jobs from white players, not any of those sorts of things. He's saying that they haven't made it into the majors because they haven't yet gotten the abilities to do it. He's saying that like Satchel Paige doesn't have much of a curveball, that he's not using his fastball enough. And he's saying that Jackie Robinson and other players, they don't have all of the qualities that you would need to make a major league player. And so he's looking at it very much through that worldview of sort of individualism, self-reliance, bootstraps, and not looking at the sort of systemic and structural barriers that are preventing black players from from making it into the league. So it's, um, I think that's more where I was sort of getting what, what he, where he was coming from. I understand that. And I think I have people in my own life who still feel that way, family members and others uh, that I know personally. I think I've most recently heard it with regard to filmmaking and, and when the Oscars or some such awards offer up a very white slate of nominees, there's the argument that, well, the other people haven't had the chance because they're not as talented. And and I liked the way your book kind of debunked that. Not that baseball itself hasn't done that in recent years, uh, the last few decades, I suppose. Um, but it was always a good reminder of, of how society still needs to keep working and, and how baseball can shine a, hold a mirror up to to society in that way. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, the interesting thing is that Satchel Paige in interviews right around the time that Feller is first making these sorts of comments in 1941, Paige, even though he's not responding to Feller, is saying, is kind of answering it. He does an interview with the Associated Press in 1941 where he kind of scoffs at this idea that, you know, black players didn't work hard enough or didn't have what it took. He's basically saying we work harder than major league players because we're playing more games than them. We're having to play league games and then sort of barnstorming games at the same time throughout the season. I think he says something like, I see that 
a major league pitcher throws only twice a week. And he's like, he's like, man, that'd be a make vacation for me. Like I'm, I'm pitching four to five times a week. And so I've had to sort of learn how to, to handle that harder workload. And so he's basically kind of throwing it back in their face, uh, right. which I mean, really points to the sort of like, I mean, Satchel Paige is, is, is one of the most, um, you know, intelligent sort of perceptive athletes that I think we've ever come across. And that comes through in the book as well, as does Larry Doby's personality, which is maybe the polar opposite. Um, and that, that was a fascinating part, especially because you assume that having someone else going through the same thing on the team in Satchel Page, in terms of discrimination and alienation, would have been a good thing for Doby, but it wasn't necessarily and it didn't help him with the feelings of being alone in what he was doing yeah larry doby is the first player to come into the american league he's basically uh spends a year uh on the indians until page signs um doby is signed in july of 47 page is signed in july of 1948 and he spends a lot of that year confiding in black sports writers of his loneliness of his isolation that 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 he that he feels he is uh, he has no roommate on the Indians. This is at a time whenever uh, whenever baseball players would bunk together. He doesn't he's not able to sort of go out to the dinners and stuff like that that happen after games on the road. And in fact, oftentimes he's not even staying in the same hotel as his teammates because they won't allow black players to stay there. So he's shunted to separate accommodations. Um, and so he he's really sort of facing a, an alienation that that other players people aren't going through. And he, he, he says that he wants uh, another black teammate on there so that he has someone to confide in to sort of um, talk through these issues. Because in addition to that, he's dealing with sort of extreme racial abuse, sort of chilliness from his teammates, other sorts of issues that, that come with being a pioneer. Um, and whenever Satchel Page is signed, Page is 17 years older than Doby. He is sort of by that point, a legendary figure, not only among black fans, but also among white fans. He sort of crossed over into the white mainstream media. And so he's just a very different, he's at a very different place in his career and he's been shaped by a very different generational worldview than Larry Doby. And so they, they are sort of at, uh, they're sort of loggerheads together. They don't, they don't get along. And, um, and he, that isn't the teammate that Larry Doby was pining for. Yeah. Another player that accepted in different ways and, and has gotten the attention that Doby has not is, is Jackie Robinson. And you do mention in the book that they would talk to each other, shared struggle, um, obviously helped them relate to one another, but was there anything more? It seems like such a fascinating topic, the relationship between Doby and Robinson, one that we really don't hear about. Yeah, they, they're they were certainly linked throughout their, their lives. And um, in interviews later in his life, Doby would talk about how in 1947 in particular, um, they would, they would speak to each other on the phone um, at night after games and sort of talk through the issues that they, only they were sort of uh, going through at the time. And um, it was, I think Doby said that they, they kept each other from giving up. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of like with, with Paige, Robinson and Doby were in different sort of boats here. Like Robinson got signed in 1945. He spent 1946 in the Brooklyn Dodgers minor league organization as a member of the Montreal Royals. 
Um, he had an 18 month buildup to sort of prepare himself to acclimate to these all white clubhouses. Um, he'd gone through two spring trainings. And so he wasn't sort of rushed onto the team the way that Dobie was. In addition, Robinson was five years older than Dobie. He'd been sort of nationally known from his time as a star football player at UCLA. Um, so he'd been, he'd been dealing with the spotlight longer. Dobie literally journeyed overnight to the major leagues. He was on the Newark Eagles. He got signed uh, in July of 1947. He played uh, a game on the Newark Eagles on July 4th, boarded a train that same day, went to Chicago to join with the Indians is when, and was in an in Indians uniform the next night. And so he just had so little time to prepare and to sort of just mentally and emotionally uh, brace himself for what was coming. He said that in his first sort of at bats when he was on the Indians, his teeth were chattering and he couldn't stop them. And so, yeah, it was, it was a very different experience than what Robinson was going through. Absolutely. Very relatable too. I think most of us would be shattering even if we had to do that now regardless or race uh one thing besides race relations that really seemed in touch with the current times in terms of baseball at least was the way that bill veck drummed up support for his team by putting money into it and it just with the state of baseball the way it is, particularly Cleveland baseball, it really made me pine for an owner like Bill Veck, who wants to spend his money, who wants to make the best product possible to bring fans to the park and provide entertainment, which is kind of the antithesis of what's going on now. And I, just what about Bill Veck and his character has gone missing from the game? And, and can baseball get it back, in your opinion? I think it's the element of surprise. Like Bill Veck really um, wanted fans to come to the game not knowing what they were going to see. They knew that Bill Veck was always thinking up promotions and schemes and stuff like that. So they could come to an, a game and there could be a, a giveaway of livestock or they could be a, there could be a sort of contortionist on the field that was like like catching baseballs while standing on his head things like this. And uh, he rarely sort of promoted what he was going to do in advance. He wanted fans to just sort of show up and be like, oh, what's going to happen? Um, a lot of the sort of stuff that you see now that kind of come came out of Bill Vex's head, you know, whether you got stuff on the jumbotrons or just mascots, t-shirt cannons, it's all become sort of corporatized. And like, you just kind of expect these sorts of things to have, well, this is the t-shirt inning. This is the inning where they do the cap dance, like sort of stuff. Um, Vec was was unpredictable, and my book opens with a uh, a start that Satchel Paige did on August twentieth, nineteen forty eight, and this was against the White Sox in Cleveland. And there is a tent in the outfield fence where Vec is holds, hosting a garden party for various mares. There is a contortionist running around the outfield doing crazy stunts. There's bands on the field. Satchel Paige is warming up. And the White Sox, who were playing the Indians that day, are coming onto the field during batting practice. And they're looking around at this, and they're just, like, stunned. They're just like, what is this? Because no other team was really doing this. In fact, one of the players on the White Sox is, is, shakes his head and says to a reporter, is this baseball? Like, Bill Veck was just kind of inventing out of whole cloth. And I think that you don't, you don't really see that. You go to a game expecting to be entertained, but... It's, it's a very sort of, you know, standard entertainment. 
Yeah. And it's, it's interesting to me that you're a Cardinals fan because when you associate the Cardinals with anything, it's, it's that old fashioned style baseball. So how did you feel reading about Bill Vec? Did you want that to come into the game in St. Louis, anywhere in the league? Yeah, and I think that Vec was also just so concerned about um, catering to the fans. This is a man that that uh, that would give several speeches a day. I mean, he says in his autobiography that like if a Cleveland organization called him to talk, he's like, as long as you had you know three chairs and and a table, I'd be there. It's uh, he sort of dedicated his life while he was the owner to 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 reaching the fans, to try to get them to come out to, to increasing their comfort and their entertainment and the product on the field. Like he was, he was sort of tireless in his, his, his efforts at building the Indians roster into a championship contender. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just, it's a different time um, right now. And I think that, you know, that whole sort of idea of the Cardinal way which is the way that us St. Louis Cardinal fans have come to know about it. This sort of idea that we play baseball, quote unquote, the right way. I think Bill Beck would have hated that. <laughs> he, yeah. would have, he would have just been like, no, like you gotta, you know, we're playing baseball the unpredictable way or something like that. Or, you know, that this whole idea of, of, of the right way of doing anything was something that Beck would have just been like, oh, that's not for me. <laughs> Well, Luke, I feel like I could talk baseball with you all day, but I uh, only have so much time. Those are the questions I had prepared. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about the book? Uh, no, it's uh, it's available today. I, I hope you all like it. And uh, it, it was such a pleasure for me to to learn more about Cleveland and, uh, and that team. I really think it's one of the most exciting uh, baseball seasons that I ever come across. It, it was one of those things where I knew very little about the 1948 Cleveland Indians. And the more and more I got deeper into it, I myself was just like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. It's, this is such an exciting story. Um, so I hope I've done it some sort of justice. Absolutely. The book is fantastic. I hope a lot of people read it. I'm going to be doing a giveaway to make sure at least one more person reads it from our readership. Um, and I thank you very much for the book. Thank you for your time. It's our team, the epic story of four men and the World Series that changed baseball by Luke Eplin. It's out now on Flatiron Press. At Luke, thank you. Thank you so much. Wow.